Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Once I launched Girl Boner, it clicked things together where I was like, oh, there's there's actually a reason or at least a purpose I can assign to this way of what some people would consider oversharing. And of course, what ends up happening, since I interview folks, so many of them are neurodivergent because who's going to get on a podcast and talk about their boners, right? Like, oversharers are my favorite people in the world. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. I'd like to share with you this excerpt from a review from a listener named Welsh Whirlwind on the Apple Podcast platform in the UK. It's entitled A Big and Long Overdue Thank You. I've been a longtime listener and longtime procrastinator over leaving this review, but I wanted to say thank you because you've played a part in leading me to the diagnosis I received at the age of 37. Having lived life up until now not really feeling like I'm with the program, never really being understood even by myself sometimes, and struggling, it was suggested to me by a friend I should look into ADHD. And wow, did the penny drop. I then embarked on a journey of discovery, and you are one of the first places I came to. And stayed. You are relatable and honest, your guests contribute brilliantly on a wide variety of topics, and you touch upon things that still now make me think, oh, that's an ADHD thing too? I find reassurance and comfort in knowing I'm not alone, and I genuinely consider it an act of self-care to listen to your episodes every week. Keep up the excellent work and take care. Wow, thank you, you gorgeous Welsh whirlwind you. Honestly, I couldn't agree more that these interviews are an act of self-care, certainly for me, so I'm so glad it feels that way for you too. Big, big hugs to you on this wild journey of self-discovery. And for the rest of you, if you're listening to this podcast and you've been helped by these conversations, a lovely way to say thank you is to take a moment to leave a review, either on the Apple Podcast platform or Audible, or if it feels like that is too much right now, and believe me, I totally get it, you could also just stop and quickly hit the five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. In fact, if you want to go do it right now so you don't forget, I promise I'll wait for you. Okay, here we are at episode 128, in which I interview August McLaughlin. August is a journalist, author of several books, and the host and producer of Girl Boner Radio, which was named one of the best sex podcasts you should be listening to by Romper, and one of the top feminist podcasts by Belessa. Her articles and expertise about sex and sexuality have been featured in a range of publications, including Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, Forbes, and Shape, just to name a few. August and I talk all about her history with anorexia and how a lingering addiction to diet pills led to her ADHD diagnosis. We also talk about body dysmorphia and some of the common experiences so many of us have with ADHD and disordered eating. And we also talk about sexuality and ADHD and the paths to finding what works for our brains and our libidos. 
Now, I am going to put a trigger warning on this episode because we do talk about anorexia, dieting, and disordered eating behaviors. So if you're not in a place to listen to this topic, you might want to skip this episode. Otherwise, this was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Oh, August, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really, really excited for this conversation, and I have so many questions. Uh, (laughs) Let's start with your ADHD diagnosis. Um, I guess, how long ago were you diagnosed, and what was happening in your life at the time that really led you to think I should look into this or, you know, really helped you kind of connect those dots? Yeah, so I'm in my early... 40s now, I guess almost mid-40s now. And I was diagnosed at about age 30. And what led me, I wasn't actually thinking, oh, maybe I have ADHD. I was just trying to figure out once again, what was wrong with me. (laughs) Like that had been this journey throughout so much of my life. And I was in a really happy, healthy place, I thought, in so many ways, as far as like just more stable than I had been in the past. As far as work goes, I was in a really great relationship. Like I just felt like there there was no reason for me to be struggling that I could see before I could like point to, oh, this was like a toxic relationship. And this was, you know, there were these other stresses. But I thought my life is kind of like on the surface looking like it's going pretty well. Um, But what happened was I had gone through an eating disorder in my late teens and early 20s, and had moved past it, like considered myself pretty much like recovered. I wasn't wanting to lose weight at all. I didn't have any of those desires. And yet I was so fixated on diet pills and these like stimulant energy drinks. And I couldn't figure out why this kind of like crutch that was such a big part of my disordered eating was calling to me all the time. I even ordered online these pills that you can't, because what happens is they become illegal because people have all these horrible effects. And so I was like in the dark, like Googling. And I'm like, am I, is this an addiction? Like, what is this? And so I went to see a therapist. And I think that on session one, she kind of sensed what was really at play there that I think she figured I had ADHD. But um, it took a few sessions before she brought it up to me. And then what she did was she started guiding me through different questions, and then she did like a full assessment. But the assessment itself was so validating because it just felt like she was reading my diary or something. I'm like, how do you know so many things about me? I like scored better on that test than any test in my life. (laughs) Like A plus, got them all. I felt the same way. Um, And and it was, you know, those, those hilarious aha moments when I was having my assessment because my assessment was just a conversation with my GP for half an hour. It wasn't any, I, I didn't have like the really long four hour uh, psych assessments. Uh, but she was asking me these questions where I was like, she was asking me about like what I feel like when I'm sitting in traffic and, you know, questions where I'm like, I'm not hyperactive. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I'm like, oh, right. When I sit in traffic, I want to rip the steering wheel out of the <laughs> dashboard and throw it out the window. And I'm like, I see where we're going with this. Uh, yeah. Okay, so then, so your therapist was asking you these questions, and then what was the next step? I can't remember if she's flat out said, you have ADHD. She asked me if I would want to have this assessment for ADHD because she suspected um, it was at play. And so after this longer assessment, um, she diagnosed me, and I felt so excited. It really felt like this mysterious puzzle from my whole life. (laughs) Like, I felt like I had the secret, like, no, you'd understand there's something wrong with me. I, and I, I cringe a little when I say that now, because I don't, I don't think there's something wrong with me. Uh, but I did for decades and I would get so like hyper from exhaustion. And so nobody really kind of understood that I was really struggling with this. Um, there were just so many different factors that, no matter what I did with my life, I think so many people, especially women, you know, we we push so hard to try to be successful and 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 good. You know, there's like this good girl thing I grew up, I think, around where we have to have this moral value. Um, we have to achieve. We have to um, meet these different benchmarks. And I just I struggled in all these things that felt so basic. And so medication really, really was a total game changer for me. 
I actually, I mean, it made me very emotional because I've heard others say too, it's like putting the glasses on. It's more than that. But there is something that's like, oh, I'm not only am I now allowed to be here, like I felt so validated that, oh, this is how your brain is. That is how you're supposed to be in this world. But then also that there were these different treatments that could be really helpful and that, and that have been helpful. It's just been incredible. I mean, just totally changed everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of women, especially with internalized hyperactivity, we don't realize that's not how everybody thinks. So we don't make that connection that this is internalized hyperactivity, because I'm like, I just assume everybody thinks this way. And everybody is, you know, tormented by songs and thoughts and lyrics and all of these things all at once. And so it's really kind of coming to that understanding that it doesn't, you know, that there are other ways of being and and medication is like that, right? Like so many times we talk about that first taking that first stimulant medication, and everything's so quiet and just being like, Oh, my goodness, this is what other people are like. Yeah, yeah, totally profound. Uh, now, going back to this idea of like, what's wrong with me too? I mean, I think that's a theme that we talk about a lot in this podcast. Um, and how, you know, even the, the diagnosis of depression and anxiety, which is so many of us are diagnosed with that, with those mood disorders or similar mood disorders. I felt that way too, which was like, my life is great. Like, objectively, my life is fine. I have a happy marriage and kids and like, I have why do I insist on being depressed? And I used to feel like what's wrong with me that I insist on being depressed. Um, It was one more thing that I felt like what's wrong with me. right? (laughs) And then and then it's like, well, now I feel like a terrible person. So now I am depressed. And it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. Uh, And it bothers me that so many of us have had this similar experience with therapists where there's not that curiosity in terms of what is underlying the depression and anxiety. It's mostly just like you're depressed there. You, like that's, that's who you are. And, and you kind of deal with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, it totally does. Yeah. I had been diagnosed with depression and I don't know if I was diagnosed with anxiety, definitely struggled with it. Uh, I had a therapist and a psychiatrist both thought that I had bipolar. Like there were so many things that never fit. And a lot of times it wasn't this thoughtful diagnosis either. Yeah, like what is underneath it? And so for me, I know some people have, um, you know, multiple uh, diagnoses that are all very legitimate. But um, my depression and anxiety just like went away, essentially. I mean, I think I have a normal level of quote unquote, normal level of uh, anxiety now, you know, about certain things and certainly residual from growing up and feeling misunderstood and all these things. But it just, I remember being on uh, antidepressants and they just, nothing, nothing ever really helped or worked for me. And I just, yeah, couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got stuck in that thought cycle with antidepressants where I thought I'm still depressed. So if it's this bad on the antidepressants, imagine how bad it'll be off of them, which is, you know, and because my, but my doctor was always like, well, let's up the dose, let's up the dose. And so I sort of bought into that idea that without them, I would be way worse off. So I have to stay on them as opposed to ever thinking like, maybe this isn't it, right? (laughs) Maybe we should try something else. Uh, But I think it's still, it plays into a lot of that narrative that we have in our lives, which is like, I just got to try harder. I just got to work harder. Um, That we're the problem, not the drug or the system or whatever it is. Yeah, it's true. It's really true. Yeah. I and Medication, some of them, like antidepressants made a lot of my symptoms worse. So I was just like, but again, it, they, I would then get another medication on top of it or something. <laughs> I just, I mean, at one point I just felt kind of robotic. I was, I was like, something is just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's wild. Now, so you mentioned that you were a hyperactive kid. So you kind of related to that looking back over your childhood were after your diagnosis, what were some of those signs where you were like, Oh, it was clearly ADHD all along. Oh gosh. Well, okay. So in addition to the constant movement, I was extremely talkative when I was little and this actually really makes me laugh now. And I think it's kind of endearing. Uh, I'd love to hear the perspective of other folks who were there. But uh, so I grew up in Minnesota and in a really kind of like quiet Scandinavian suburban community. And um, there was this family 
I had a friend who was my age in the family, and they would invite me over to dinner every now and then. And they were really, really like shy, quiet folks. And I was so excited to go there because no one, they would just let me talk. So at dinner, I would start talking as soon as I sat down. And I would tell stories and I would be all over the place and I would just talk and talk. Like I thought I was entertaining them all the way until the end of the dinner. Um, So that was one thing, which I'm really lucky that my parents did not try to change that in me. They really approached. I have four siblings who are not ADHD folks and um, they really embraced kind of let them be who they are, which I love, but not all teachers did. Um, So Puberty was really, really difficult for me. And I think I used to think that everyone had these extremely difficult puberties later on. And now I realize, oh, hormones and ADHD played a big role in that. Um, So I went to a really, really dark place emotionally when I was in middle school and uh, just, I think, probably was dealing with major depression that was uh, residual from um, unmanaged ADHD. And that was really, really, really hard. And then I developed an eating disorder. And now I see, oh my goodness, I was trying to change my brain chemistry. I was hyper-focusing on something that was not healthy. I was trying to quote unquote fix something in me and trying to be a, a better person by meeting these different standards. I mean, I went into the modeling industry. And so it's kind of an extreme example of trying to like be what I had learned from magazines and TV, what like a, a, a woman should be. And then, like I said, into adulthood, <laughs> a lot of impulsivity, moving all over the place. It was interesting when I get really passionate about something, my hyper-focus would become somewhat debilitating at times. And now it's much better where I love my hyper-focus, but it used to be really difficult. Um, I could only do the thing I was hyper-focused on. And like I said, sometimes that was not very healthy. And the eating disorder got very, very severe. Um, I was living in Paris and modeling there. When I was diagnosed, I collapsed when I was going for a run. And no one in all of my treatments, no one asked me about anything related to ADHD um, or during my diagnoses. So that was another interesting thing. That and the other thing they didn't ask me about was my sexuality. And so those two things were the kind of like the huge missing pieces in my life. I realized I had sexual shame too. Uh, so those two things helped me like realizing I, ha- I had ADHD and then also embracing my sexuality um, saved my life really. Wow. Okay. Well, that was a lot. Where <laughs> I'm like, where it do was. I know? Well, but that's how that's how our lives on play or play out, right? Like it's like you see, and it's just like, oh my god, it's like every rock underneath every rock. You're like, oh, there it is. Oh my god, there it is. And like, so many of us have a history with disordered eating of some kind. And I think back to puberty was when you know I went on my first diet at the age of 14 because I was suddenly my body was changing and. I felt really, really uncomfortable with becoming an adult, and I really wanted to rail against that. And unfortunately, you know, my mom was like, I see how unhappy you are. Let's go on a diet together. And it became this like bonding thing between the two of us. And that started this life, you know, you know, 30 years of disordered eating and binge eating, not realizing how common disordered eating is among neurodivergents. And um, I want to find out from you what you think is behind that, because I feel like you there is that control element, right, where you feel so out of control at certain times in your life. And puberty is one of the biggest ones for women. And you're just whole, you know, just trying desperately to to gain control. And, and eating is one of the easiest, most immediate ways in which we can kind of try, feel like we're controlling ourselves and our environment. Why do you think why do you think disordered eating is so rampant with neurodivergence in general? That's a big question, I know. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think you're so right. There are many layers to it. I think on one like really basic level, I think that people, a lot of us who have ADHD who are neurodivergent, we have big appetites in general for like life, for like what we're into. And so we live in a culture that has a really distorted, wonky relationship with food already, right? So we we are 
always exposed to these different messages about dieting and restriction and trends that are, you know, the healthy lifestyle plan that's just like another diet and all these things. Um, And I think that I know for me as a kid, I was just like a bottomless pit. I just wanted to eat all the time. And I remember being teased about that. Just like, oh, just give it to her. She'll eat it. You know, if somebody doesn't want to eat that. And and so I think some of it comes from we become self-conscious of having perhaps a a passion for food. Appetites in general. Yeah. Yes. Appetites in general. Absolutely. And then I think self-esteem plays a huge role because, as you know, like low self-esteem is so prevalent in in people with ADHD. And so I think whenever you have low self-esteem, you are, unfortunately, it's like this, this spiral that can snowball, you know, where you feel not great about yourself and maybe you go to food for instant gratification. You might struggle with friendships. I know I did. And it's like this thing that's not going to judge you. And there is something about, I think, brain chemistry and this desire to either restrict or change something. And I know there's some research around this, but I do think that there's something around trying to kind of level out your your own brain. I know that bodybuilders often have ADHD. There's like this, it really does affect your hormones. And so exercising is healthy, but we can take it to an extreme, you know, for sure. And I think also, I, I think that I was subconsciously trying to address something that felt off in my brain. I really do. That started in in high school when I was in my teens. And so, and then you get praised for it. And and of course, if you have rejection sensitivity and, and you're used to judgments from other people of not being normal or, or whatnot, it feels really good for people to notice changes in your body. Even when they're unhealthy, we sometimes hear them as, oh, well, Great. Thanks. Somebody's noticing me. I don't feel so invisible now. So there's so many reasons. But yeah, there's there's such a huge, huge correlation. I, I personally get dysmorphic about my body, too. Like medication really helped me with that. Seeing myself more accurately, but also not even thinking as much about my appearance. Mm, that's really interesting. I haven't explored that a lot. But it, because it, for me, so much of it has to do with... Um, exposure therapy and, and, you know, working on shame issues. So, but it would be interesting to think about how medication plays into that. You know, and it is also true. I think there's also like the, we go hard or go home. Right. And, and I think that, so we live in extremes a lot of the time. And I think that that has to do with our dopamine, uh, you know, why so many of us either were diagnosed or wondered if we had bipolar, cause we're this, we're this pendulum, but also like, I think about dieting too, and just this efficiency mindset that a lot of us have with ADHD where we're really impatient. So I would always get trapped in the, like, go, you know, if, if I'm going to lose this much weight at 1200 calories, imagine how much I'll lose if I half that. Right. And like, always trying to do these ridiculous calculations. I'm going to have to put a trigger warning on the episode for that one. You know, we want to push things always to the limits and that has to be dopamine, uh, you know, but it's, you know, cause we've I've talked about that with just exercise too. And like, I can't just exercise. I have to like exercise to the point where I injure myself or I have to like challenge myself every single time of, Oh, I did it this, you know, if I did it in half an hour, I have to do it in 29 minutes today. And like, there's never any just sense of consistency or being okay with being leveled off. Absolutely. And at the same time, this disconnect with our own bodies. I know you've talked about that. I think in a recent episode, it's like, I certainly felt that too. So it's strange. We're working so hard on, trying to change or optimize something that we don't feel connected to. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And I think also, yeah, I know you've spoken about this too, with the modeling agency that, uh, or just modeling in general, there was such a sense of validation uh, and acceptance there. And maybe it wasn't the healthiest, but it felt like this performative element that's been that, you know, when you talk about like talking, you know, doing this theater and and all of that ways in which we put on a show and and are very comfortable with like the performance part of distancing who we actually are from what we're showing to other people. I think a lot of us have a tendency to like have that duality 
So, so basically, I think a lot of people think that's what masking is, and I, that's not masking, but I do think it speaks to the ways in which we try to put on a show a lot of the time uh, when we're in certain situations. And so it feels like the in- modeling as an industry would really play into that. Absolutely. And it's really freeing to step out of yourself when you feel tortured inside yourself. I felt so free when I was either on stage or I was on set. I felt like I could step out of who I am and become this other person who had value. It was it was so wild to me and and at the same time was not seeing myself the way that other people did. So I would look at photos of me and I almost couldn't recognize myself. I'm like, "What? What kind of weird camera magic is this that, you know, it was just it was wild. And yeah, lots of validation. I mean, people really, really praise you when you, it seemed like I was on the top of my career. In some ways I was when I was, was so sick. Um, but so much of that stemmed from that emotional turmoil from my ADHD going unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember feeling that way just at the height of my, at my lowest weight, at the height of my disordered eating and binge eating, I was chain smoking. And I remember people always saying like, oh, you must feel so healthy. They were always commenting on how healthy I was. And I was like, you have no idea. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's so messed up. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Okay, so you were in Paris. Your TED Talk, you talked about um, collapsing in the streets of Paris and very poignantly talking about waking, coming to with a mouthful of dirt. Um, and your first thought was, does dirt have calories? Does dirt have calories. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, talk about the extremes. Like at the time, that didn't seem unusual to me. It's the way I thought. But I remember later reflecting on it and sharing that story with people and just opening up in therapy and sharing what my thoughts were. And it's such an extreme, it's a, it's a form of, and I use this in a clinical sense, it's a form of insanity. When you, when you get that sick, your mind can't function um, in any capacity. Well, whether you have ADHD or not, I mean, the malnourished brain is a, is a very, very sick brain. Um, So yeah, I was diagnosed when I was, um, when I came to, I'd been running along the Seine River and it was like so beautiful outside. And I remember there's like colors in the sky and it just was so beautiful. And I felt such 
deep contrast. I felt dark inside. I felt sick. And I knew something was wrong, but I, I had no idea it was an eating disorder because I had absorbed these myths too. Like first I was diagnosed with anorexia and that I thought that meant you don't eat. You know, I thought you don't eat at all if you have anorexia. Um, but anyway, I, I ended up going back to Minnesota where I'm from for treatment and, um, the treatment really was not doing anything. <laughs> I mean, I should say I was not progressing because it's not that the treatment didn't have value. I think there was a lot of good things that were happening, but I just, I I think that if I had been diagnosed then or earlier, I would not have nearly lost my life because anorexia has the highest mortality rate of all psychiatric diseases. And so I, I feel very lucky to to have made it through. Well, I feel like traditional eating disorder treatment is not very neurodiversity affirming. And and I feel like that's a converse, a much wider conversation, but I a lot because disordered eating is so rampant in the neurodivergent community and many many of us feel like the the typical cut and dry treatment is aggressively ineffective. <laughs> And so I feel like there's a missing link there in terms of what we're really like getting to the root of what is causing a lot of this behavior that's not woven into the treatment modalities. It's a shame because then you come out of it feeling like, well, like you just said, like there's still that sense of like, well, I didn't, I didn't do the work or what's, you know, what's wrong with me that this didn't work for me. And we get back to that place of, I was given this, I was given this solution and I couldn't figure it out. And so therefore I'm the problem, not, you know, the treatment was not the right treatment for me. And then that brings me to sex, because I feel like, again, a lot of the issues around uh, sex and the shame around sex comes back to that question of what's wrong with me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I feel like the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, both my husband and I read it. It was so life-changing. It changed our relationship. And I really, that's the crux of the book, right? Which is whatever you're experiencing, whatever works for you or doesn't work for you, that's normal. Everything is normal. Uh, there's no not normal. And so there's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, why don't we hear that message more in our lives? Uh. Yeah, it's so true. And that was actually the turning point for me was in my eating disorder. So before I was diagnosed with ADHD, this was a good like eight to 10 years before, but I was in eating disorder treatment and I needed something else to do because I had come from like Paris and New York and London to this small town where all I did was think about my eating disorder. It was terrible. And so I took this class on the psychology of women. And one day the professor stood before us and said, today we're going to talk about sex. And it was like, what? <laughs> I had, I had, as a very curious, talkative person, I had never really talked about sex, even to the person I'd been having it with. And so that really was a huge game changer for me because it did start to help me chip away at that shame. And I stopped in that moment, really, I mean, stopped wanting to brutalize my body. I realized, oh, the shame isn't like it isn't something wrong with me. It's something wrong with this world. Like there's there's all these messages and these things that I didn't learn and that I did learn. And um, I certainly had a lot of healing to do, but it was it was totally game changing, and I I do see a huge correlation too between uh, sexual shame and neurodiversity and eating disorders. They all are just kind of like this toxic soup <laughs> that we can that doesn't have to be toxic. Yeah, right. I know. I had a I had a very puritanical upbringing, and um, it was funny because after long after I was married and had kids, I was sitting down with my parents and was like, you know, it's funny. I my high school never had sex ed. Everybody talks about sex ed, and my high school didn't have it. I didn't. I don't know why. And my mom was like, oh, they had it. We just signed the form that you weren't allowed to go. And I was like, what? I was so betrayed, even though I obviously have had kids at this point, but I was so betrayed hearing this so many years later. And I was so angry. And she, and I said, why? Why would you do that to me? And she said, um, well, we figured your husband would teach you everything you needed to know. And I was like, spoiler alert, that's not how it ended up. Uh, but, you know, so I had a very similar experience to you and just in terms of like being a very late bloomer and having to be like, where, how I had to like learn everything. I didn't know what a clitoris was until I was like 25. I didn't even know. And, and I just feel it was so embarrassing to admit that 
but also feeling like, well, I didn't, nobody told me like, <laughs> yes, it's not your fault. Absolutely. I mean, the, the clitoris wasn't in medical text until the 90s. The 90s. I mean, it's just, yeah, there, there still are huge, huge gaps. But And then the generations before know less than we do. So it's it's really hard to, to turn that around. I know, right? And it's I, my daughter's 16. And like, since she could talk, I've been like telling her all about the female sex organs and like I, masturbation, the importance of masturbation and all of this, because I'm like trying to right the wrongs of my own upbringing. And of course, she's just like, so she just eye rolls and doesn't want to hear any Shut of it. Up, but Mom. I know, right? Um, <laughs> but I'm like, that's great, though. Well, I just think it's so important because uh, to, to talk about female sexuality in terms of what we want and what we deserve and that it's about our pleasure, because so much of the narrative is about what men can get away with and what you'll allow and whether they'll like you or dislike you based on the choices you make. And it's never like we're never even progressive Sex education in high school, if that even exists, I don't think it does. But like, it's always like you've said in the past, like, it's always about how dangerous it is and how to, you know, how to abstain and not end up down these terrible paths. And it has nothing to do with pleasure. It's so true. Yeah. And it continues on. I mean, so many states don't require sex ed. It's not mandated and or it doesn't have to be scientifically accurate, which they're trying to leave room for like religious values. You can have religious values and you should still learn scientific facts about your body. Yeah. So now how did you end up talking about sex so openly and um, making this kind of your your M.O.? <laughs> yeah. So that big aha moment in that college class, I, I really haven't stopped talking about sex then, I don't think. Of course, I didn't do it publicly right away, but I was like on a rampage about this. So it just flipped a lid off of me. And uh, then I ended up going back into fashion and then acting, and that led into writing. And I ended up, I acting brought me to Los Angeles, and then I realized that writing was really my passion. So I built this health writing career. And I was writing for different publications. And I had a blog that was very health oriented. And then around age 30, I discovered self-pleasure for my, for me, like for the first time. Um, I even wrote a paper in that college class called Why I Don't Need to Masturbate. Uh, I, at that time, considered myself like a very sexual person, very, you know, I had pleasurable sex. I, I didn't struggle with orgasms. I felt fortunate in that way. But I had been basing my idea of what my sexuality was on another person. I hadn't even thought about <laughs> the shape that I still had. And so one night, my longtime partner was away, and I started to feel really blah. And I ended up discovering through a series of events that, oh, my goodness, I'm actually really horny right now. And so I decided to go and find this like sex toy that was a secret, you know, joke gift kind of thing that some friends had given us and it was still in the packaging and everything. So I played with myself and it was like so to bring myself to climax was so emotional for me. I mean, it was very fun and pleasurable, but immediately after I just fell down in tears because I realized that there still was this residual shame and also this big missing piece of my my life that not everyone needs to masturbate, of course, but it's not that I wasn't masturbating because I made a decision not to. It's like the decision had been made for me, you know, from when I was just a tiny little kid. I remember my grandmother, um, I was asking questions like kids do, like, what's down there? And my sweet cookie bacon grandmother turned into like Satan or something. She was so upset um, and scolded me and yelled at me, never touch that. And I didn't even realize that I had carried that message with me. And so that's when I realized, because prior to that, I had been approached by different um, people in the literary industry who were like, well, why don't you write a memoir about, you know, the eating disorder? And I'm like, that doesn't feel like my story. Like, I know it's a part of it, but there's so much more to this. There's something else that's there for me. And I just... That moment of of realization really um, came with that self-pleasure experience where I knew that I needed to do more in that exact space. So uh, I launched a blog series, which was really scary at first. I mean, I was very excited. But the moment I hit 
uh, published, I was like sweating and like shaking because I had this blog following, which included my father. Like, you know, people were getting posts about like, you know, vegetables and my dog and writing. And then I'm like, girl boner. So um, I called the, ser- called the series girl boner, which was a term that was kind of an inside joke for myself since that awkward sex ed class where I remember learning about quote unquote male pleasure and sitting there waiting for something good for somebody who had a body like mine. So as soon as I heard the word boner, like kids talking and realized what that was, I thought to myself, what about girl boners? So it had been this joke in my own head. And I was like, okay, so this term that I love that's just feels so fun to me and is so you just hear it and it brings up myth busting, which is what I wanted to do. And so I uh, launched the series on my blog and it led to so many different things. But my advocacy, my business, my podcast, which is um, Girl Boner Radio, which is like my my passion and my joy and kind of my whole life now. That's incredible. And I think, you know, it really lends to one of the ADHD superpowers, which is self disclosure. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) I love how you put it that. Thank you for saying it in such a positive way. Yes. Um, Yes. But I used to always think that that was one of my terrible traits where I was like, I can't I always say too much. I'm an open book. I and I used to compare myself to Sophia from the Golden Girls where I'm like, I think I had a stroke. I don't know how to self censor. Um, and now I'm like, it's, it's every like, it's, it's brought me all the good in life, which is I can't shut up about myself. But in a way that I think is really validating for other people to hear, right? Like, it, I think it really speaks to our desire for validation and our desire to feel normal, right? And and to answer a lot of those, you know, to or to rail against that question of what's wrong with me. Yes. And you're helping so many people by speaking up, like you said, this thing that felt like a flaw is, it so often is our superpower. I remember trying to talk to some of my friends about sexuality before I launched a girl boner. And there were times where they were just like kind of stunned that I, it didn't feel like I was talking about sex, like it was the weather, you know, I just thought, oh, this is now that I realize there's no shame in it. Let's just talk about it. Like it's normal because it is. And that is not where the world is in many places. And for a lot of us, and I had to learn to filter that a bit, but once I launched Girl Boner, it clicked things together where I was like, oh, there's there's actually a reason or at least a purpose I can assign to this way of what some people would consider oversharing. And of course, what ends up happening since I interview folks, so many of them are neurodivergent because who's going to get on a podcast <laughs> and talk about their boners, right? Like. Oversharers are my favorite people in the world. I just love you all. Please give yourself a hug. I just think it's the best. Well, it's funny because I am such an open book on this podcast. And one of the things that terrifies me is talking about sex because it's not just me. It's my relationship with my husband and I want to respect his privacy. And I don't. And so then I get like really, really concerned where I'm like, oh, I can't. I've said too much. Uh, you know, um, you know, and is he going to be okay with this? Because I do, you know, I want to be respectful of his privacy. How do you, how do you manage that, that part? That is a great question. <laughs> and I so relate because I, my partner is the opposite as far as talking loudly Same. in public about sex. Yeah. So you get it. Um, and so he's very supportive of what I do. He loves what I do. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. And I was with him when I launched Girl Boner initially. And so when I brought it up to him, I said, you know, this is what he knows me. Like if I'm going to do something, it's, it's not like, what do you think if I, he knows I'm going to do it. Like I, <laughs> um, and so he just said, this is so you, like he was so proud and so excited and also blushes a lot. Um, but we did decide together that I would talk about my sexuality. I can talk about my sexual experiences. I can talk about a sexual experience that I'd had with him, but I'm not going to say it was him, you know? And so the only times that I have shared specifically about him, and this was a big one. I mean, this I think this took a lot for him, and I'm very grateful. The first chapter in my Girl Boner book is called The Orgasm That Changed My Life. And it's my self-pleasure experience, but leading up to it, I'm having all of these fantasies and daydreams like about him. And so I'm talking about him. It's it's about me, but I'm talking about him. <laughs> and so and uh, it was a big, big deal, I think, for him to agree to that. And uh, 
And I know that that's been challenging for him. But the nice thing is it has given me, I think, a sense of privacy that I didn't realize would be helpful to me because now, you know, I've traveled around speaking and because the world is such that it is and we still do live in a pretty sex negative culture with all these mixed messages, people think that if you talk about sex that you want to have sex with them or, you know, there's just all these wonky things that come up. And so it's actually been a really lovely thing because our intimate life feels very intimate. And so I I just don't, I don't talk about him, but it's a muscle. I had to like, I would like make little notes for myself. And I remember asking him, should I just say it was like someone named Frank? And he's like, no, that's even worse. (laughs) Like one of my friends is going to listen and call me and be like, who's Frank? So it's funny. And like one of the top Googles for my name is like my name and husband or like my name and partner because people want to know. And he's private on social media too. So like this mysterious being (laughs) is a wonderful guy, everyone, but private. Yeah, I know. That's so funny because I feel like I, I... I know that they, he has staff who listen to this podcast. <laughs> and so I'm like, he is a very, very private person. But I also like, I know that we have, you know, there are a lot of people that we both know who listen to this podcast. So I always have to be like, oh, God, what did I say? Because it just tumbles out of me so quickly. And but you're right, it's he knows. I mean, he loves me and supports my personality and wouldn't be with me this long if he didn't. So I think he he, he gets it. <laughs> Uh, our our husbands could be a little support group together. <laughs> oh, I know, right? I've said that before where I'm like, there needs to be a support group for husband or for partners of people who are recently diagnosed who it's all they want to talk about is, oh my God, did you know this? Did you know this? Like he has to listen to me all the time talking about ADHD. So he's kind of an expert now. I think that like the that concept with the book Come As You Are and why it was so life-changing was because it allowed us to really start to look at like, what are, what does she call? She calls it like your on-ramps, right? Like, like what are some of the reasons that- Your gas pedal. Yeah, the gas pedal and the brakes and all of this idea of like, what, what do we need to really help us focus in? And so some of these things, some of those, um, Aspects around sex that are really, really difficult for people with ADHD, like, you know, having a really hard time not thinking about the grocery list when you're trying to climax, you know, and like really like having being not being able to regulate how you're thinking and being able to focus in the moment and stuff like that. And um, and and all the shame that comes around feeling like, oh, I'm not in the mood right now, or maybe I'm too much in the mood or like all of these ways in which we feel like. What's wrong with me? Absolutely. And there's a wonderful brain scientist, Nan Wise, who did a study where she looked at brain activity during pleasure and arousal. And she found with her team that you can have a very busy mind. You don't have to slow your mind down. You don't have to like get your thoughts away <laughs> to have pleasure or orgasm. And I, I just thought that was a really important study simply to give that idea. Like it's normal. It's okay. It, if if you're somebody who thinks about a lot of things during sex or during arousal, that's okay. It doesn't have to, you don't have to try to like fight those thoughts, which just makes them more invasive, I think. Um, but also sex tends to be a place for some ADHD folks, and some, I would say many, where it is one place where they can become mindful and become very present because even with ADHD during orgasm, it's really difficult to be thinking about the grocery list or your shame. I mean, our confidence and our body confidence and our sense of self can strengthen so much by having that pleasure, whether with, we're with a partner or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and being able to reduce stimulus is, I think, really important. That was something that we learned over time, which was like, like, I don't understand people who can, who, you know, and obviously everybody has their own journey, but I would always hear stories of people who have like the family bed with their kids or in their bed with us, with them. And I'm like, how are you intimate with kids in your bed? I don't get it. (laughs) But like, you know, really, really struggling with managing home life and children and like finding ways to really be present is something that we've had to work really, really hard at. And oftentimes it ends up being things like we'll go to a hotel sometimes because it's the only way that we can leave our phones and the dog and the kitchen and the kit. And like, that's a really, really wonderful way for us to be present. And it, you know, it's it's expensive, but it it's the best. We have such a good time. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so yeah. it's a treat that we do for ourselves where we're like, yeah, this is this is like a date night on on steroids. Uh, <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that. I've shared too much. He's going to be mad at me. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> or his his coworkers will be very moved and proud and excited. Well, that's true too, cheer right? For you both, I think. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. I mean, and it's such a good example too for folks to hear that because I think that's such a common, common thing, you know? And I think another thing that can be really important if you're neurodivergent is and for people who aren't too, because first of all, the brain is the most impactful sex organ, whether you have ADHD or not. And not having ADHD brings its own set of challenges to the to your brain, right? Um, we can be very, very passionate. Like pleasure, obviously, can be a big drive for us. Like there's so many wonderful things that we can bring to sex and intimacy that we may not have if we were neurotypical. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And then I think also it's really important to give yourself permission to have intimate time for pleasure by yourself and or with a partner or partners when a time of day that feels good to you. I think that there's a lot of pressure around like right before bed, you have to have sex then. Some people enjoy that. That does not work for me at all. Um, and I think that if you've ever struggled with sleep, if I have sex right before bed, I'll be up all night long. And then I feel terrible the next few days. And it just throws this whole thing into this weird spirally thing. And so for me, like late afternoon is so much better. And so I think it's really important to just give yourself permission to be like, what do I actually want? Not not, not what, what can I do to try to be like this image of a sex person that I have, which may or may not have anything to do with what other people are doing. And even if it does, it's not you. You don't have to be like other people. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I find an interesting paradox with ADHD is, you know, so many of us have that desire for control, feeling so out of control in our lives that we see these patterns where we really try to like zero in and try to control things and solve the puzzles and like become perfectionists around certain things. But I think there's also this paradox with sex and it being in a relationship where we're very uncomfortable with being in the in the driver's seat. We're really ex uncomfortable with asking and sort of exerting control in, in, in a relationship. And a sexual relationship is all about asking. It's all about selfishness, right? In some ways, it's really about being able to ask for what you need. And that's really a lot of us struggle with that. I think especially women, which is like, I'm more comfortable with somebody else making decisions, whether it's what we get for takeout or, <laughs> or, you know, but all of those ways where it's like, I'd rather be the one who's disappointed than the one who disappoints. So somebody else needs to make all the decisions. And that kind of just doesn't work when it comes to sex. That is such a good point. That's one reason that I would recommend for folks who get really stuck in that realm, especially if your partner also struggles with initiating or asking for what they want. Have you heard about yes, no, maybe lists or have you ever? Oh, no, please explain. About them? So you can make your own or you can find them online. There's one in one of my books, um, but basically, and there's different themes, but there are three columns, yes, no, and maybe. And then on the, on this, side, it lists all these different activities. And both you and your partner would fill it out. And I, for each item, let's say you have one that is like general sex stuff, because you can also find like kink ones and BDSM ones and all these different things. But let's say it has like long makeout kissing. Are you a yes, a no, or a maybe? And it maybe just means like, not for now, maybe it'll change. Um, and then maybe Another one could be um, having sex in a different room. Maybe it's a little bit of role playing. Maybe it's, you know, you just list all these different things. And then you just compare your charts together. So you, it's it's a conversation without being like, um, excuse me, but this is what I want. <laughs> or trying to say it in a sexy way, which could feel intimidating if you're not like, you know, it just doesn't, if it doesn't feel like you to just bring up some some dirty talk during sex or talk about it outside the bedroom, they can be really helpful because you'll see where things match, where you both have yeses. Um, and then the maybes are the ones that you would talk about. But then you have a guide to kind of like, oh, well, it's a worksheet. It's not like I made the decision. <laughs> it's like it was handed to us. But they can be really helpful and also just give you a lot of good ideas. There's so many different things you can try. Right? Yeah. I remember what was the book? Oh, God, I'm not going to remember it now because I'm terrible with names um she's a she's a really famous sex uh 
Couples therapist. Oh God, Esther, Esther Perel. Yes, and and yeah. one of the things with her book was um, was mating in the wild. Is that what it's called? Oh, mating and captivity. Mating and captivity. <laughs> Whoops. God, I'm so terrible. I do that I too. Know, right? Like the exact opposite word will come out, but it made me think of it. So good to right. Me. But it was like mating in the wild, uh, where she talks about kind of figuring out what, how to make things new, right? And and not the novelty element and role playing and some of that stuff. But it was really difficult. I was like, I don't know what I'm into. I think that's a really difficult question for a lot of us. And where it's, it would be nice to say, like, let me look at a list and what stirs something in me, as opposed to being like, let's try. I don't know, feathers. And then you bring a feather and you're like, mm, no, now I feel like a failure again because they're not doing anything for me. So I think <laughs> I think it'd be, right. be helpful to have a list of, of already created lists where you could like check off things. Absolutely. And if you try something and you don't like it, that is great information to have. I mean, it's great. And also sex is supposed to be fun and messy and weird and funny and strange. So like it's just part of life. Like if you're not making a mess sometimes, if you're not having a faux pas, like some sort of strange thing happen, you know, maybe something's missing because it's, that's just normal for everyone. No matter what kind of brain you have, sex is going to be wonky sometimes. It'll be hilarious sometimes. I mean, yeah, I think the funny adventures are some of my favorites. And whether they're orgasmic or not, whether they end up with lots of pleasure or not, I think it's such a beautiful form of intimacy to be vulnerable and laugh and be goofy with a partner. Mm, yeah, very well said. And I, yeah, I think once we can get out of a place of shame or, or feeling like there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, I think it can be really freeing. Yeah. So now, and I love the, you know, another thing about ADHD is you're like, oh, and I also wrote a fiction book. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) I did. (laughs) When was that? Tell me about that. Your novel. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote a psych thriller called In Her Shadow. Thank you for asking about it. I don't get asked about it very often because, you know, I'm doing this sexuality work. And so if I ask, if somebody brings up what books have you written and I mention a novel, they just kind of like don't know what to say. So thank you (laughs) because you get it. Um, Yeah. So I, like I said, knew I didn't really want to write a memoir, but once I really, because I have a love affair with my work. Like when I am, when I find something I love doing in work, I, it feels like this romantic, incredibly passionate love affair. And so I even called my acting, end of acting career, like my divorce from acting. I wouldn't quit acting until I fell in love with something more. And so I fell in love with writing and I was, I mean, I just declared I am a writer and I just wouldn't stop writing. And I knew I needed to get my own story out, but I didn't want to write an eating disorder memoir for, for lots of different reasons. And so I thought, well, what do I really love reading? And I love reading psych thrillers. So (laughs) This isn't actually a genre, but I wrote like an anorexia psych thriller because I thought it is such a scary disease and that's something that gets missed a lot. People think it's about, you know, it's all about just control and discipline and they imagine these like ballerinas with lots of discipline and that was not me. And also, even if that is you, the the inner turmoil is so much more. It's it's the closest thing to a horror movie in your own life than I can imagine anything is. And so I decided to write a psych thriller that has an eating disorder element to it and lots of different twists. And it takes place in Minnesota, uh, again, where I'm from. And there's a therapist in it. And um, it was really fulfilling to write. And and actually, when I finished it, this is very classic ADHD, I think. People tell you what is like the natural, normal next thing to do. And so my agent was like, when is the sequel coming, right? And so I'm trying so hard to be this good, diligent author. And I sit down and I'm like working on the sequel. And the way that I compulsively wrote the first one, I was just like forcing myself to write the sequel. And then I played with myself that night with a toy. And I realized Girl Boner was my whole life. And it completely terrified my agent, who was this like very nice guy who very shy about sex. And so it was like this explosion of, oh, what do I do with this writer? Um, and so I got a different agent because everyone says your second book sells your first book. Like you need to keep writing the series. You need to keep going. And I was like, yeah, but I can't. I literally can't. My my passion 
is my teacher. It's my compass. It's my guide. And I'm going with it. And so I did. <laughs> um, and uh, it took a while to, it took, I think, from the inception of my Girl Boner book to publishing. It took like six years. Uh, but I'm really glad that I went that route. And I still love thrillers. I still love fiction. And I could see myself wanting to do more of it in the future. Um, but I just don't put pressure on myself to have passion for something until it's there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I love it. Because it's like, yeah, you just you got it out. And and now you're on to something new and interesting. How, now with the with the Girl Boner book, is it a collection of your blog entries? Or how were you able to put that together? Yeah, so when I wanted to launch Girl Boner, the reason I did the blog series was because as a writer, I was thinking in books. And I was like, well, I need to have a platform, you know, now we more often say brands, but at the time it was like, build your platform, you have to show prove to readers and publishers that you have an audience. And especially with a sex book, I knew that self-publishing would be much more challenging. And so I wanted a traditional publisher. I wanted to have help because so much of what we do gets pulled off the internet. We get blocked on Facebook for saying vulva, like it's it's a lot of drama. And so I wanted that like added legitimacy that can come with having a, a traditional publisher who could like knock down doors. Um, and so the book itself is like I'd written a proposal while I was doing the blog. And so the the blog is separate, but the, there are a lot of common themes. And I, I start with sharing some of my own story, but then I actually include a lot of um, folks who I've interviewed for my podcast and their stories so that it's a whole collection of folks who are um, identify as, as women or were reared as girls. And it covers everything from like mismatched libido to sex toys to um, there's journaling prompts in every section. And I tried to make it really fun because I think Sex is supposed to be fun and, and silly, like I said, and so often it can feel like this really heavy topic. And so while I do address shame a lot and I do address um, things around, you know, trauma, which unfortunately is really common too, I I want people to have some lightness and some fun and to create their own journey. Yeah, I love that. I I, I also talk about sex like it's the weather, just asked my teenage daughter, and, <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way, right? And um you know, I remember once, uh, was it? I think she was, she was quite young, or maybe it was even my son, who's a bit younger. I don't know. One of them, we were watching a TV show and, and somebody talked about masturbation. And one of the kids was, uh, my son was like, uh, what's masturbation? And so if it fell to my husband because he has to sort of deal with the, the male issues. Right. And he looked at my son and he was like, it's having sex with yourself. And then went back to watching TV. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the explanation we're going to give. And I like made him pause and we had to have this whole conversation where everybody was unhappy and uncomfortable. But I was like, I want like we need to normalize this. It was like so important. It's been given my upbringing. I'm like, it's so important for me to normalize this. So, yes. Oh, thank you for doing that. Uh, so well, important. no, I mean, thank you. You're the one with the doing doing the heavy lifting out there. Um, and now do you work with people or is it I know you do public speaking, but other than coming to your website and getting your books do people can people work with you or how can they find you yeah i'm not a i'm not a, a coach or anything um but the best thing is probably my podcast is where i put all of most of my energy now i'm i'm also a journalist so i write sexuality pieces for like daily ohm and i do some ghostwriting for gynecologists um, so you can find my articles on my website, augustmclaughlin.com. Uh, but if you want to hear about just a whole range of stories, I on my podcast, I guide people through their own personal experiences. And so there's a huge range of and, and common themes, too. But for folks who are like, I don't know what I'm into, it's actually a really good way to explore different desires and hear what people are into, what, you know, different experiences that people have. And every story, there's a lot of like spicy true stories, but then there's also stories about like sexual self-embracement, sexual awakenings, which can happen all throughout our lives. I've had guests from age like 22 to 82. And yeah, it's really, it's really my, my heart and soul. And I, I put a lot of um, care into the content so that people can be entertained, but also learn something. So they have advice as well mixed in. Um, yeah. But so that's girl boner radio and that's three words, girl space boner slash radio. 
<laughs> I'll have a link to that in the show notes, of course, and, and oh, your books too. Um, and I think you. it's, you know, I think vicarious learning is something that is really a wonderful way that we um, educate ourselves as neurodivergence, because I think it's, it has that double component of being validating and affirming, but at the same time, like really informational, which really tickles all of our brain <laughs> neural pathways. And cause we're such like voracious learners. And, but I think there is something about the vicarious experience It's probably, you know, why anybody would listen to this podcast is because we're talking about our, our personal experiences and everybody's nodding along being like you too. Oh my God, me too. <laughs> I feel very passionate about preventing boredom for people because I cannot tolerate it. So it's one thing I love about your podcast is like, if it's something I can Google, I don't want to podcast about it. Like if it's, what are the side effects of medication or what are the symptoms of ADHD? I can Google that. I want to hear voices and stories and super cool people. And so that's why I love what, what you're doing too. And that stays with us. You know, the stories stay with us. I think they, they change the world. Mm, yeah. Great point. Well, thank you so much, August, for coming here and sharing your story and all of the fascinating things you've been doing and all of the different paths that have led you to who you are today. So I find that endlessly fascinating. So thank you so much. This was great. My pleasure. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for the work you do. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one -on -one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the app store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself.